Miss O'Connell? Yeah. Miss O'Connell, my name's Kevin Wilkins. This is Roger, Jimmy. Hey. hey. We're the senior class committee at Sicily School. Yeah? Actually, we're the senior class at Sicily School. The three of you? Well, there used to be Lisa French, but she moved, which is why we're here, actually. See, homecoming is this weekend, and we don't have a homecoming queen, so we were wondering if it's not too inconvenient. Would you do it? Me? Homecoming queen? Well, why don't you ask a junior? Well, we could, but there's only two girls in the class, and they're twins, and they're, you know... Total kibble. Homecoming queen is supposed to be a babe. This is a joke, right? That's a... That's Jack Black right there, right? <laughs> yeah. Guest starring Jack Black. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just a, I, I feel like we maybe had spoiled this or almost spoiled it to you in a previous episode, but I think, you know, we kind of brushed over it quickly. One of our, like, guests maybe mentioned that Jack Black is here, but this is kind of, I guess at least to us, like, this is probably one of the biggest guest stars that we've seen on Northern Exposure. I guess not at the time, but... Yeah, was his career big at that point? Like, what is this, 1993? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Let's see. I, I know it wasn't as big, you know, definitely not. But I feel like he was probably, like, on an episode of the X-Files or, you know, stuff like that. Let me see. Like, played like a, played like a <laughs> dead body on NCIS or something? There's, like, a YouTube video that I saw a long time ago where it's, like, I think it's his first bit of acting where he's in a commercial for the video game Pitfall, like the Atari video game. And he's like a little kid <laughs> dressed in like a pith helmet and, and stuff like that. Come on, there's got to be like a little... Okay, hey, oh, go ahead. Do, do you know how I know whenever an individual has made a big in Hollywood <laughs> is whenever they have their own separate filmography page. Like it's not yeah, tied it's not to tied just to the their main Wikipedia, Wikipedia page. That's true. They yeah. have so many roles. And then the, the, the stage after that is when it's not just called like Jack Black filmography, it's called like Jack Black's performances. <laughs> Have you ever seen that before? Wow, this is pretty big. I do remember him, and I still know what you did last summer. I remember that. Uh, he was in Waterworld, apparently, but no, I guess before before '93. Oh, these are just film credits. So, like his first film credit was in '92. Uh, not a lot of acting going on in TV. Yeah, this was, I think he had like a, a a role on this show called Our Shining Moment in 91, uh, just in like the pilot episode. And then 93 is when he starts booking more roles in TV. And I was right. He appears on the X-Files in 95, the episode DPO. Anyway, I think, yeah, I think very much so. He's, uh, he's definitely like not a huge name yet, obviously. But, uh, yeah, pretty cool in this episode, I think. What a what a waste <laughs> of an episode for him. True, I guess. Well, yeah. So I'm I'm sensing that you're not uh you're not such a a big fan of this one. It's not. It's not. It's just great. like a bit lack lackluster, maybe. Yeah, let's go with that. That's that's a more it's <laughs> a more friendly term. Well, let's dig into it. This is the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined by my co-host Charles. Now, I'm a big fan of the show, and Charles, this is your first time watching each episode, so we're in season five now. You've got a pretty good grasp for the show. Uh, I would say you're a fan now, but but also, like, it's interesting because every time you watch an episode, you've really got sort of, like, a first-time, fresh perspective. Yeah, that's right. It's always the first time for me seeing it, and I gotta say, like I had mentioned up above, it is... 
Probably one of my most disliked. Oh wow! Northern I'm, Exposure episodes. I'm actually really excited to hear, like, because there must be something in here that's just like very despicable to you, or something. I don't know, something that must offend you about this episode. It. I, I wish it was actually like that. Like, if it was some sort of um, like if it was if they were like openly advocating for like something racism offensive. or something, like something yeah. draconianly uh, terrible. Then I could be like, all right, we're on a moral ground. I have to be like, <laughs> this is, you know, mega garbo. But in terms of this episode, it's actually just from like an everything standpoint. Because like they were trying their, you know, I genuinely believe they were trying their best. It's just sort of like a, a clunker maybe. Like it's just pretty, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's just like boring, I guess to you. Is that the, is that the right? Not as exciting uh, or... Or just everything failed. No, it's, Every, yeah, it, it just feels like whatever they were trying to touch on and all the themes, I just, I felt like there was better ways to deliver it. And I also just didn't care about any of the plot lines. Yeah. All three of them. I was like, I don't have any emotional investment into this. I don't feel like it's anything important to talk about. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll get more into <laughs> it. But who, who was the culprits responsible for today's episode? <laughs> Today's episode is Season 5, Episode 5. The title is A River Doesn't Run Through It, I guess playing off of the Robert Redford film that came out the year prior, A River Runs Through It, which uh, I actually was talking to you about it, Charles. I watched it kind of over Thanksgiving break just because it was something on Netflix and I was at my parents' home and kind of had nothing to do. And I'm glad I did. I think it did help my understanding of this episode, though there's really not a lot similar. We'll, we'll get to it later, I guess. But also, I think I pointed out to you, Charles, or I remembered to you that uh, Anne Gordon, who was on the podcast uh, a couple episodes back, she was the animal coordinator for Northern Exposure, but she also did uh, the training uh, for, I'm I'm assuming there's like a, some, there's like a dog that does some tricks in A River Runs Through It. So she did the animal training on that movie too. I thought it was pretty cool to see her work or just to see this dog and think, oh, that's, that's Anne, like behind the scenes. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, um, the director of this episode is Nick Mark. He's actually directed a lot of episodes of Northern Exposure, though this is his final episode as a director. Um, his previous credits on this series, he directed the episodes All is Vanity, The Bumpy Road to Love, Animals Are Us, Wake Up Call, Our Wedding, Nothing's Perfect, and do the right thing, and then this one, of course. So some pretty good episodes in there, I'd say. And the writer is Jeff Melvoin, who actually wrote the last episode that we watched. And if you want to get his full credits, uh, you can listen to that episode or just go to Wikipedia. He, he's written a lot of episodes of Northern Exposure. And this is his like second double header. Again, I don't know if that was like planned or if this is just how the episodes rolled out for broadcast, but he wrote the last episode and this episode, and I think, what was it, like Ill Wind and uh, Love's Labor Mislaid. That was another doubleheader that he wrote, like back-to-back episodes. Um, finally, the air date was October 25th, 1993. All right, well, let's just cut right into it, beginning with the very first scene that's happening in here. And it's Maggie doing maintenance on her plane, along with, uh, I don't believe we're acquainted yeah. with this character. Which is funny, because we talk about this in season five. They're giving like all of the extras proper names, but I don't think they gave his name in this uh, 
You know, so just to- Oh, it's Mitch. Oh, Mitch. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, you know, just calling back to something you said just a few minutes ago or just now, Charles, about how like this episode is kind of lacking and, you know, doesn't explore ideas. Uh, It doesn't have like interesting ideas. And then when it does, it doesn't feel like it fully explores them. I felt like there might've been like deleted scenes or something. It felt like a lot of things were left unsaid, but- there are no deleted scenes on the on the DVD extras, but um, well, let's just nothing, talk. Nothing to save this episode. <laughs> yeah, nothing. No saving grace. Uh, well, the episode actually begins, as you said, and I think like the first line in the episode is about how Joel is not going to be in this episode. So that's already sort of a downer. I mean, I think we talked about this. There was a recent episode where Joel was not present. I think. Uh, we mentioned like he was like shooting that Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, oh no, not Martin Scorsese. Um, is it also Robert Redford? No, who directed Quiz Show? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, another Red- Redford joint. <laughs> yeah, so so Joel was gone for that, I guess, uh, or Rob Morrow was out, and I, I guess that's when they shot that episode. But anyway, we got another episode without Joel. I think the last one, the last time he was like absent, it was it was okay, um, but this one. Maybe not so much. I guess technically he is in this episode, but he's not in Sicily. He's he's uh, not featured very much in this episode. But some things I wanted to talk about, obviously we listened to the opening soundbite. That's basically the scene. Uh, Maggie's like fixing her plane when Jack Black, this high school senior, walks up to her and asks her out to the homecoming dance. I thought it was interesting that, so when Maggie's like working on her her airplane, something happens and like oil sprays all in her face and she's trying to clean her face as uh, Kevin Wilkins, you know, Jack Black's character, approaches her and, you know, they they compliment her. Like, what do they say? That the, uh, the other girls, the juniors in their class are total kibble, like not very attractive and um, homecoming queen is supposed to be a babe and, you know, inferring that or uh, uh, suggesting that Maggie is a babe, you know, uh, but she's got oil all over her face and she's like kind of not the most presentable, I guess, at this moment. I think Janine Turner always looks great, but I was wondering, is there like any, what's the significance to that? Like if you're writing this scene, what, it seems like there must be some importance to her getting splashed with oil. Uh, I guess it's what you said, like it would catch her off guard mm-hmm. if they were complimenting her on her physical appearance at this moment while, you know, obviously she's not up to tip-top shape with the oil being sprayed all over her. So I guess that would be the reason. I don't think there's any, like, underlying symbolic reason as to why she has oil being sprayed all over her. There's, like, something there. It doesn't, like, click. It doesn't, like, you know, it's not, like, a a super strong symbolism, symbolic reason or or, or metaphor, but there's something there, I guess. Um, But anyway... Uh, it's kind of left on a cliffhanger. I think uh, the end of that soundbite is like, are you serious? Or you must be joking or something like that. The title music pops in. And when we come back to the episode after the moose and all that, we see like all these, lots of youths like painting and decorating for the homecoming. They're like painting all the glass windows and setting up decorations. There's pictures of Jack Black uh, posted around. There's uh, some some slogans like "Go Marmots, Nuke Whales." So I'm guessing the Sicily uh, high school sports team is the Marmots, and their their rival is the Whales. I actually thought this was like a football team until like 
halfway through the episode, and then I realized it's a fly fishing team. Yeah, I thought it was a football team as well, based <laughs> on the jackets they were wearing. And yeah. I think that, like, even, I, I want to say hauling even makes a mention that makes it sound like... Football or something? It's a, Yeah, it makes it sound oh. like it's football. Yeah. But I think that's cool that they kind of, I don't know, I, don't, I can't remember, maybe they said it early on, but I think it's cool if they didn't, it's kind of like... Uh, a little hidden surprise is like, oh wait, they've been talking about fly fishing this whole time. That's like, right. Of course, you wouldn't expect that, but of course, it makes sense to be in uh, Sicily, I guess. Right. I, I think uh, I don't like this because, like, number one, when did they even get a school? Like, right. it was never <laughs> they they had like an elementary school. I, I remember that because of the um the plot line involving the teacher that was teaching. Oh there. right, yeah. But this one is like a full fledged high school with like multiple it, it, there's i mean That's at least true. like like 30 kids yeah this is a bit of retconning because you're talking about i want to say the title of the episode is learning curve i could be totally wrong but it's the one where holland goes to like high school and his class is comprised of like little kids you know teenagers it's like maybe four or five people in the class but all different grades um so yeah this doesn't really make sense this is kind of retconning the idea that there's this whole High school. There's like a gymnasium where they're having their high, their homecoming dance later. Yeah, that that would suggest it, it. Just makes it look like the town is bigger than what it actually is. And we've talked about this before, all throughout season five. They're just making the town feel like any other town. Like it, the special thing about Sicily is that it has how many people? Eight hundred sixty-four. What's yeah, I think it's again? like eight hundred and thirty-nine. I actually rewatched. There's like an episode where. Ed makes a documentary, remember, about the mm-hmm. town. And then it's like funny. He says something like, you know, population 838. And then it's a shot of like a newborn baby. And he's like, make that 839. Something cute like yeah. that. So. so there isn't a lot of people right here. And we've never talked about some high school existing. <laughs> and now they're shoehorning it in. And not only are they shoehorning a high school, they're shoehorning like a very generic plot of a high school, like yeah. homecoming. Yeah. That is like the grandbaby of all vanilla plot lines. Yeah. They saw that and they're like, okay, we this just can't it can't be football. We have to think of something else. It's too it's too generic. Yeah, they're they're bringing the sitcom to Sicily right here. <laughs> Definitely. Is essentially what's happening. Anyway, uh that's the first plot line. Um yeah. should we stick with this one or should we move on to the other two, which would be the IRS agent and Maurice? Uh, let's go to one of those. Yeah. I feel like, though I feel like each of these, you know, doesn't really have like any like mega profound, um, uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, let's get into it when we do, but I'll, I'll leave the choice to you. Pick, pick either the, uh, IRS or, or Maurice and, uh, Lester. Uh, let's go with the plot line with the IRS agent, Amy Patterson. All right. So Ruthann, is actually I can't remember what's going on in this scene. She's probably in her store when Amy Patterson walks in and she's from the Internal Revenue Service and is here to, you know, I, I think she's expected. She's like, I, I'm from the IRS. You know, I'm here to do the audit that, you know, you, whatever's going on. So, you know, we get the sense that uh, Ruthann is going to have some trouble here juggling with the IRS. And we can see by the end of this scene, like uh, this Amy character is sort of observing Ruthann's practices, 
things like, um, I was, I don't know if it's in this scene or not, but like, you know, like some, what is it? Like Walt, uh, walks in and he's like, all right, I'd like to buy this new car battery. And instead of paying her with money, you know how you would in a normal store, he, he gives her like a collection of like animal furs. And she says, bring me a couple more of these and we'll call it even or something like that. Right. Which, you know, trips the alarm on the IRS agent who is auditing her. So what she doesn't realize is that you still have to record, you know, any profit that you get from bartering or any just like service that you get from it. You basically just find like the fair market value of goods Mm. and you just report any income on Schedule C. And if you barter for exchange and it goes on Form 1099B, uh, (laughs) I'm I'm glad they actually went into it a little bit. They explained the principle. But Mm -hmm. yeah, she basically goes on to say like the IRS is here to collect any theoretical money that you are going to earn. Uh, Anything that would actually generate something, it has to be taxable. So that is what she is really going in on. And that really carries us over to the next scene where, you know, she keeps grilling her and saying, like, you know, if it exceeds 25% of this, it could be like a felony. Uh, This is like a really serious thing. And then her pager rings. And then she has to go pick up the phone. Yeah, she asks Ruthann, can I borrow your phone? This is like, as you said, in the midst of her kind of grilling Ruthann and pretty startling news about a felony. This auditor lady, Amy, is like completely losing it out loud like in public on Ruthann's phone. It's funny because like Ruthann is depicted as like pretending not to overhear this phone conversation. But Amy is just like straight up yelling at her husband, I guess, or maybe divorced husband. Obviously some marriage uh, problems going on. And uh, yeah, how how could Ruthann not hear this conversation? She's like pretending yeah, like this it, didn't happen. How is this in <laughs> any way natural or like... <laughs> It's played off terribly, in my opinion, because if you were an ordinary human being, you would just be like, okay, what just happened right there? But instead, the scene doesn't do that. Yeah, it's it's just like hush, hush. And Ruthann's like, I guess I didn't hear that. Uh, let's, let's get back to the audit. Um, so the next time we see uh, the this whole audit plot line... Um, I think is when Amy sort of has a breakdown, like in the midst of uh, going over some, I don't know, receipts or something with Ruthann. She she has a breakdown. Is that right? Yeah. So the beginning of this scene is where she's talking with Ed and Ed is a little bit worried at this oh, yeah. point because he feels like he's not uh, contributing to society or that he is not successful in the eyes of others because of what Maurice said to him. And Ruthann cheers him up and says, like, you know, don't listen to that old blowhard. He may have money, but that's all he has. You're going to be an artist. That's much more impressive. Uh, And that's when it transitions to the scene that you were talking about where I I thought it was an overall very silly scene. Because she's just talking to her about, like, you know, various goods that she has or the value of them because they're trying to assess it to make sure that, you know, she's paying her fair due. And then the agent again breaks down right there. And I just... It's just not very natural. And I'm also like, we're kind of being nondescript about like what exactly is going on with this uh, Amy Patterson from the IRS, like what her marital problems are. But I mean, even if we got into it, it's like not that it could be anything. Just like generic, like her husband cheated on her. Like, you know, it's not that thrilling or, uh, you know, it's not that important to the plot. It's just that, you know, she has marriage problems. That's 
basically. What's Yeah, uh, that's basically it at this stage where we're not entirely too sure what the details are until the very next scene, which is them again in Ruth Ann's door at the deep in the night just talking about her forms, and that's when Amy Patterson reveals that it was their therapist. And that might be the only okay. interesting thing about it was that it was a marriage counselor. Someone that you would see to fix a marriage is the one that's causing the fault of it. Yeah, like the husband cheated on Amy with their marriage counselor, which is, yeah, that's terrible and uh, should never happen to a person. That should not be a real thing, but uh, it's happening to Amy. I actually thought this was kind of funny because, uh, <laughs> you know, Amy, you know, admits all this to Ruth Ann and then begins, you know, she's like, whatever, whatever, like, let's, let's, uh, let's look at these receipts, these forms. And Ruth Ann's just straight up like, I don't think we can do this audit right now. Like, you need to go to bed. <laughs> like, you need to chill out. Like, Ruth Ann, you know, it's like, let's do this tomorrow or something. Uh, Amy says that she's got a room at the bed and breakfast. So, you know, they she can go to sleep and they can pick it up tomorrow. I thought it was cool. They didn't uh, outright say Ron and Eric. But, you know, this has got to be Ron and Eric's bed and breakfast. I mean, there's probably, it's only got to be one bed and breakfast in Sicily. So... You know, cool to cool to think that Amy's staying there, though she doesn't actually stay there. I think we find out later she stayed with Ruth Ann uh, the night for whatever reason. And the next time that we see them is at Ruth Ann's house, and they have like a conversation about how it's easier to talk with strangers about very heavy subjects. And there was something that I thought was really interesting in this discussion was that Ruth Ann was talking about how she kind of fell for another individual uh, across the ocean whenever she was packing parachutes in England. And the idea of packing parachutes is really interesting because that's your life saver. That mm -hmm. is the device that you would use at your time of emergency. Sort of like your significant other, like you rely on them, and yet that's the thing that's falling apart. Yeah, that's really good. And then like just the word parachute triggers in Amy uh, she mentions how her husband's father like died in a parachuting accident. Did I make that up? Did she say something about that? Yeah, <laughs> it I sounds think it's crazy for me to repeat it. Sky, yeah, they like died skydiving, which is also insane to happen to a person. Um, so she was saying, you know, you're talking about parachuting, packing parachutes reminds me of this. And of course I was like, I was there for my husband when his father died. It was like me. Of course there was like, you know, therapy and medication maybe, but like, you know, I was his rock. And now he, he just says that I'm smothering him now. So yeah, it's it's a hard time for Amy right now. <laughs> well, again, we're brought to another scene where they're back in their store and they're counting up the receipts finally going through each of the months. But yeah. it turns out the month of December has been typed in incorrectly. Yeah, this was a really interesting scene when I was watching it. Um, you know, of, of course, I've seen these episodes before. It's been a while since I've watched season five. So I initially thought that Amy purposefully typed in the wrong amount. So what was happening is like, uh, Amy asks her, Amy asks Ruth Ann for the total uh, income, like the receipts or whatever, for each month. And when they get to December... Ruthann says something like 17,000 and Amy uh, inputs something closer to like 14,000. So Amy is like underreporting 
And I thought she did this on purpose. And we get this like oh, shot of wow. Ruth Ann like looking over Amy's shoulder and seeing this, but not saying anything about this uh, miscalculate, this like failure to record the the right number. And, and I thought this would make sense because you know like Ruth Ann was there to comfort Amy, and like Amy maybe appreciated this and wanted to help Ruth Ann out. But that's a, I don't think there's any. You know, there's nothing in the episode that says that's what had happened. I think I think Amy accidentally put those numbers in. Um, but yeah. regardless, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. It's totally accidentally. Yeah. Regardless, Ruth Ann seems she looks very guilty by the at this like at the end of this uh, scene when she notices like that uh, error in uh in the little what is that like little uh adding machine or whatever. Yeah, it's an adding machine right there. I thought it was cool. In the next scene, when Ruth Ann is like uh, relaying this story to all of her friends at the brick, uh, she talks about you know like seventeen thousand is was like my my receipt said that, and and Amy typed in fourteen thousand, and then you get a shot of Halling, and he's trying to like calculate the difference, and he's counting on his fingers like he did in that episode Learning Curve. Like he's <laughs> really good at math because he has this weird multiplication trick with his fingers and he like you know he figures the difference pretty quickly i mean obviously i forgot it's about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a neat little tidbit right there they they kept that show bible i like it uh speaking of hauling he's the only one who actually he's the only one who had like a presentable argument in my opinion he, he made the argument so what's happening in this scene is that uh they're at the brick and ruthann is feeling guilty that the irs agent put in the wrong number therefore she has to pay a less in taxes than what she rightfully should yeah. pay. And everyone else has their own opinion and their own take on it. One uh, one fella has like a, in my opinion, a particularly egregious view where he's like, ah, oh, no, like government didn't do anything for you. Why are you paying them? I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what do you mean they don't do? Like, what? what? <laughs> um, but anyway, the, <laughs> he has that view and everyone else has their own view. And then Hauling has the one view that I think is actually reasonable. He says like, well, this may be a lot to you and it's not going to be a lot to the U S government because it will make and break you if, whether or not you have like 2000 extra dollars in your bank account, whereas to the U S government, it will still survive. The wheels of the government will keep turning with or without yeah. your $2,000. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Ruth Ann who says it feels like cheating. And, you know, I zeroed in on that line because Amy, her whole, uh, problem is with her husband cheating. And so there's got to be some s- connection in Ruthann's mind, at least, that she's cheating. And because she, you know, she admitted in the previous scene, one of the previous scenes to Amy that she cheated on her husband at the time. And uh, it's only because that her, this person she had an affair with, like died in the war, that that chapter of her life kind of went away. And Nothing ever surfaced from that again. She was able to sort of put that, put the past away and live happily again with her, with her husband. But yeah, I notated that for sure. And also Chris, I like he gives the basketball analogy. He says, it's kind of like basketball, like maybe you're trying to shoot your shot and a guy from the other team slaps the ball away. It's a clean block, but the ref calls a foul. What are you going to do? Tell him he's wrong. You're going to step up to the line and you're going to take your shot because next time the call could go against you. And then who says uh, it's not cheating if it's their mistake? Is that hauling? 
Or is that someone else? Maybe that's the extra, the guy at the bar. I think it's the guy at the bar who you're talking about who's like, yeah, the government it, it, doesn't deserve anything from you. Well, the thing is, like, Chris's analogy would almost work if mm-hmm, yeah. we would assume that the IRS was being ran negligently. But, <laughs> like, they know how much taxes you owe. It would be uh, pretty odd if they made a mistake which, which can happen. I'm not saying that's the odd part. I'm saying if they made a mistake and then they didn't own up to that mistake. Because Chris hmm. is uh, theorizing that like, well, like the U.S. government, you may be stealing from them, but one day they'll steal from you. It's like, I don't think they'll, they'll, they'll ever come a day which they like, <laughs> they'll like outright illegally steal from you. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but anyway, I, I, I digress. Uh, we're brought to the final scene, which is right back in Ann's store again. Ed is sweeping... You know, making sure that everything is good. And they're signing off on the documents until Ruth Ann finally has her consciousness come up and say, like, no, you actually made a mistake right here. Let me, you know, here's the paper. And Amy takes a look at it, realizes that indeed she did put in the wrong number, and then writes in the new total and then just unceremoniously hands it off to Ruth Ann and leaves. Yeah. Ruth Ann pays like an extra thousand plus interest. And I guess she's got a clean conscience. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what we're supposed to take from that. I guess just, you know, maybe it has something to do with that cheating angle. Uh, You know, when is a, you know, when is it ever good to cheat? I guess according to Ruth Ann's story, like never, you know, at least maybe that's what her viewpoint is now. Um, with this IRS situation. But um, I don't know. I was just also thinking like how much more interesting it might have been. Maybe not, but it might have been if uh, if Amy did intentionally try to charge, you know, try to, um, you know, represent the those that income as less than it actually was. And Ruth Ann kind of confronting her about it. You know, they both know that Amy knows that she was uh, misrepresenting these numbers. Um I don't know. It probably probably would have ended the same, but no, no, no. I think that's a pretty good alternative take on the situation. Uh, the way I would have actually done it was to have this scene be the climax of the scene, mm-hmm. and and then Amy would realize that like it's analogous to yeah. cheating, and somebody was doing the right thing, quote unquote. And that's where we can actually move on to a theme, move on to something else. Uh, this one just makes it feel very empty. Like, a, a, as if yeah. we are led to believe that Ruth Ann should not have done this. In a way, yeah. You're like, because you, the way you described it is it's kind of unceremoniously just like, yeah, all right, well, uh, you owe $1,000 more plus interest. Uh, see you later. Like, I'll never see you again. If you have any questions, contact our local office. Uh, see you forever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what the takeaway on this is. Like, you shouldn't be truthful. You you shouldn't be honest. You should take what you can get. Uh, don't expect others to reciprocate kindness. Like, what? These are all very cynical, negative lessons, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, I did something like this uh, in real life just recently. I was at the grocery store, and I it was at the self checkout. And I was like, you know, checking out some broccoli, some heads of broccoli, and they have the sort of like scale that weighs it. And it was about to charge me four cents for broccoli. 
And I was like, well, that can't be right. And I like tried to undo it. And it was this whole thing where like you had it like called in like a, a one of the clerks at the store to come by. And it's like total waste of time. And like they were just like, what's up? And I tried to explain it and they just canceled it. And I I paid like, you know, two dollars or something instead of like four cents. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. And again, I don't know exactly how I felt after that. It's, uh, I don't know what the big deal is, but yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, okay. So maybe I'm just groaning under the weight of my own internal self-righteousness right here. <laughs> but I think it's good that we own up to paying like our, uh, a fair amount yeah. of what we're owed. Now, I know people are going to make the argument and be like, that's a, you know, multi-million dollar uh, corporation or grocery store chain, it's not going to miss the few cents that, that you had. And that's right. That's an objectively true statement. Like, yeah, they're not going to, they're not going to go into the red for, <laughs> because you didn't yeah. pay the full price on a head of broccoli. Uh, it's just that the principle of things is that like, if you have like a set of moral standards, then you kind of have to live up to them. You can't just live up to them whenever they're convenient. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, this goes into the whole thing about a broken window and a guy stealing, you know, drugs to save a life and, you know, the store owner just has to pay the price of a window. <laughs> yeah, it also reminds me of like uh, earlier in the series, someone is like trying to get some coffee at Ruth Ann's store and it's like, you know, there's no one there, but there's like a canteen of coffee and then like a cup for some like change. And it's just like, toss some change in, fill yourself some coffee, like you just it's the honor system, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, that's that's the ending. That's what we get for Ruth Ann in this episode. Let's dial it back to Maurice now in this episode. And a new character that we haven't seen yet, uh, this Lester Haynes, who we hear about in sort of the opening of Maurice's plot line. It's interesting, in this scene, they're sitting outside. It's Maurice and Ed, and Ed is doing some yard work for Maurice. He's planting trees. And they're talking about wealth and like growing wealth. And in fact, Maurice is reading some magazine. Uh, it's kind of hard to see. I bet we could have figured it out with the Blu-rays, but I'm not on it right now. But it says like Alaska on the front of the magazine somewhere. And this article he's reading is about the top five wealthiest people in Alaska. And Lester Haynes is number five. He's the first uh, native to make it on the list. I'm assuming the rest are just white men. I think it's all men. Um, and so, you know, he kind of like brings this up to Ed. And this is, I guess, also what gets, you were kind of mentioning this earlier in the Ruth Ann plot line, what gets Ed thinking about wealth and money. But yeah, uh, did I already mention this? Like the whole Ed is planting trees. Maybe there's a connection here with like growing wealth and, uh, starting from something small, becoming this, like, top five. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's a really good observation on that. Um, I was thinking more in lines of, like, you know, what, what was that, what's that old proverb where it's, like, the best time to plant trees was yesterday, the best time is, like, mm, now? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I was going in that direction, but I like your analysis a lot more where it's, like, you're trying to grow something, just like Ed is trying to do. Uh, yeah, and Maurice... You know, a real big 1992, you know, energy time right here, you know, <laughs> talking about like, hey, you can escape the shackles, you know, you right. step up your boots, you can make it <laughs> to be a billionaire as well. <laughs> um, 
So Maurice has got to go see this Lester now that he's in the top five. And it turns out that there's like some sort of land deal that Maurice had mentioned to Lester or like they, they maybe started some negotiations, but it never went anywhere. So Maurice maybe is trying to open up those negotiations again. And he goes to see Lester in his home or his office. It looks pretty swanky. He's got, uh, Lester's got like a, also like a butler of sorts. Lester's phone is ringing off the hook. He just seems to be like a very busy man right now because he's, this article was published. And not just that, but I think he's also kind of, maybe it's a power play or something, but anyway, like disrespecting Maurice because Maurice is sitting there to talk with him. I mean, as a friend, you should just give him your attention, but also like he's trying to do like maybe some business as well. So that requires some attention, but Lester is like, just picking up the phone without even saying like, oh, hang on, I, I really need to take this or not even like acknowledging that Maurice is talking to him while the phone is, you know, he picks up the phone and totally like shuts off from Maurice and then hangs up the phone and picks right back up as if nothing happened, you know? And obviously this is, we could see this is irritating Maurice. Yeah, there is a lot of talks on telephone this episode. Mm. Like, especially... Yeah, you know what? It actually happens on all three plot lines. Because in the first one that we talked about, it happens between Amy and her husband. In this one, it happens between Lester and Maurice. And in the one we haven't gotten to yet, it happens to Maggie and Joel. Yeah. And every single time they're on the telephone, it's not like their lives get better. Their lives get worse. <laughs> their communication is actually less than what it had beforehand, even though the telephone is supposed to help you, you know, communicate better. Yeah, I guess it's not until the very end. I think there's like, at least what we're supposed to gather as like a positive interaction between uh, Joel and Maggie at the very end. But um, but yeah, it's it's a, a, a big obstacle in this episode, the, just telephones. Right. One thing that I noted during this exchange between Maurice and Lester was that Maurice was telling Lester to come on over because he's got some new paintings. Uh, two, in fact, well, Maybe the first one's not a painting. The first one, he says, is a Giacometti. Uh, Alberto Giacometti was a very, very influential Swiss sculptor. He is the one that made those really tall, slender models. You might have seen them in, like, outdoor exhibits before. Hmm. Oh, wow, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he was really influential in that regard. I don't know much about him, but I have seen those statues before. But the second person he mentions is a Mondrian... Uh, specifically Piet Mondrian. He is a Dutch painter, really well known for his abstract art. Though he, you know, before he became really well known for that, he was also known for doing a lot of other uh, naturalistic paintings. But I really like Piet Mondrian's abstract art. It's the one with that has like uh, really heavy, black, thick grid lines. And it's just colors on some of the squares it's definitely like mm, something you would yeah. show to somebody and the other person's just like, that's art. And then like, you know, you get into a whole debate about, you know, what art actually is. But I think it's actually really, it's pleasing to the eye. I think it's very aesthetically pleasing. He also has like this quote that I think is really interesting and I actually disagree with, but he says that art is higher than reality and has no direct relation to reality. To approach the spiritual and art one will make as little use as possible of reality because reality is opposed to the spiritual. We find ourselves in the presence of an abstract art. Art should be above reality. Otherwise, it would have no value for man. 
And I kind of get what he's saying right here. He's saying that like if you try to tie art into the ordinary, then what you're going to make is just ordinary things. But I think, in my opinion, art is created by people for people. And as much as we think there's like a mysticalism behind some art pieces, at the end, it's meant to be enjoyed by us. I think that trying to endow it with special powers or properties is kind of gatekeeping in a way. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely like his perspective. This is like a sort of philosophy he has about art, but I'm with you too. I think like, you know, something you said is like, uh, you know, it's our art to him is maybe sacred, uh, mystical and spiritual, but all, art can also just be natural and simple and literally, you know, just like a book. On, I'm looking in my office, a book on my shelf, like, turned at a certain angle. You know, I don't know. You can find beauty in in any everyday thing. Right. And if we tie it back to Giacometti, the first one that I was mentioning, with his tall, slender models, those things kind of resemble like stick figures. Yeah. Which are like the most simple, basic things that you would ever draw. In <laughs> fact, they might even be the first thing Charles that you Charles is draw. like, I could do this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's actually like a, isn't that like a famous quote against Picasso? <laughs> Where it's uh, like, I could do this. I don't see like the appeal of it. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm yeah, saying yeah. that like stick figure, you know, model has a lot of meaning behind it, even though it looks very simple. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, how did we get on this? Okay, Maurice, yeah, he was inviting Lester to to check out these things. What does Lester say in response? He makes some sort of comment. Well, the important thing I think is that he doesn't shake. Maurice's hand oh, right. at the end of the scene. Yeah. Which is pretty messed up. But again, maybe it's like a power play. As we'll see, I don't think I don't think Maurice gets the upper hand uh, you know, ever yet in this episode. Um, but before we go back to Maurice and Lester, there is that scene that we talked about briefly in Ruth Ann's store where she um, you know, sort of encourages Ed and says, Don't don't forget, you're going to be an artist. Like, that's much more important. But we didn't mention, I really like this quote from Ed, which kind of like starts this whole discussion. He says to Ruthann, is it all right not to make a lot of money? And I don't know, I just really like that. Um, Ed is like, you know, just such a great character to deliver that. And even though he doesn't really have his own plot line this episode, we could see that he's thinking about what's going on in the other plot lines, which is really interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely doesn't play a large role or facilitate really any meaningful change in the other characters, but it's just nice to have Ed in the background. Yeah, well, we do see Maurice. Maybe I'm skipping around, but the the next notes that I have is when he's at K-Bear with Chris. Well, hold up. There is a dinner scene that happens right there. Uh, so what's happening in this one, and it's a pretty short and simple scene, is that Maurice is with his business partner slash, like, attorney? He's someone who dabbles in law. Yeah. And he's having dinner with Lester and his wife, and what's happening in this scene is that Maurice is trying to grease him up and say, like, hey, why don't you take my deal over those, uh, fancy eye doctors over in Portland? I'm gonna offer you something even better. And he drinks and tries to persuade them. But Lester's wife says, like, you know, not here. Like, we're having such a lovely dinner. Yeah. He's, you know, Maurice is trying to get down to business. 
uh, but there's still sort of a separation going on here. Yeah, so that, that's a little short scene. And then we do get to the scene with Maurice at K-Bear. Um, we forgot to mention, or I forgot to mention, Chris has his beard again. I think we saw that in the pilot episode. Um, not pilot, in the in the first episode of this season. Uh, so I'm guessing this scenes with um, Chris were shot around the same time because uh, he's not bearded in the second, third, or fourth episode, at least not as as much of a beard as we see here. Anyway, Chris is just remarking on how Maurice has got this wonderful high from like closing this deal with Lester, and Chris uh, compares capitalism to crystal meth, just like it gets you so high. <laughs> <laughs> but that was interesting. Yeah, I said he's got you running bare. <laughs> um, but yeah, Maurice is just like, yeah, I can't, I can't handle it. I mean, I can't, I can't get a grip on myself. I'm just like really excited because Maurice is like uh, close to this amazing deal, apparently. Yeah, it's very interesting. Again, it's talks of control. So Maurice is in control of the situation because he has now managed to convince Lester that he has made a good deal. But in actuality, Maurice is the one that made a better deal out of it. And if we tie it back a little bit to Refan's plotline, it's a little bit of like dishonesty or like the covering of truth that's happening here. Because mm. Maurice isn't explicitly lying. He just managed to like obscure the truth a little bit, which is what would have happened if Ruthann didn't honestly tell the truth to Amy. So, you know, yeah. conversations about control, conversations about honesty – Going hand in hand in both plot lines. But the important thing here is that Maurice is just giddy that he is able to pull a fast one over Lester. Yeah. And unfortunately, he's got it all all backwards because when he goes to Lester to kind of like finalize, we can see that on the contract, like there was this misunderstanding uh, that Maurice was like wanting to sign off on this whole tract of land on the riverfront. And what the papers say, like what they signed and what they drew up is um, that Maurice is only going to get like 15 feet of riverfront property, something very small. Like they, Maurice is saying like, you know, I, I wanted like parcel A1, not parcel B1. Like there was some sort of miscommunication, but I guess it's obvious like these, the contract doesn't lie. So yeah, there, there's definitely like a bit of hostility going on too in this scene because neither of them are, are going to budge. And Lester's, you know, obviously you know, trying to play it cool, but he's not going to, uh, he's not going to change this agreement. Right. Lester's got some business acumen behind him. And, uh, one thing that is interesting about this scene is actually the coloring of it. So previously, mm. whenever they were inside Lester's office, it's predominantly green and it's got some like modern, uh, looks to it, uh, particularly like the windows. They're like yeah. a circle with a line that goes to the bottom of it. And it's like so pink I've never glass seen that. or like quartz glass or something. It's very strange. Yeah. Super very crazy right here. Yeah. But whenever we get to this scene, uh, there's lots of red. There is a focus on the red painting, a focus on the red chair along with the red picture frame and the red notebooks. And then when we flip to Maurice... There's also a red wallpaper that we had not seen previously. Mm. And it reflects their state of mind where things are starting to become more conflicted. Yeah. And I believe like the end of that scene is basically like 
Maurice is like, what are we going to do about this? And Lester's like, what are you going to do about this? Um, like, are we going to court? Like, what, what's about to happen? And the next time we see Maurice, he's talking with that friend, that attorney, whatever, what have you. He's trying to figure out, like, how they can nullify this contract. And, you know, his buddy's like, look, I haven't practiced law in a while, but it's pretty obvious that if you have a contract, like, what does he say? It's something like, you know, he's like, I've seen court cases uh, over just, like, scribbled words on a napkin. And that's, like, that's been upheld in court before. Like, this, this is, like, all legalese and it's, like, properly done contracts. Like, you're screwed, Maurice. This is going to happen. <laughs> I, I think there actually is merit behind this. Uh, it's been a while, but I remember taking a uh, business law class. And I remember we spent like an uh, entire lecture about talking that. about what a contract actually was. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very extensive. So it can be uh, napkins, right? It, yeah, it, there's something, there's like a difference between like a written agreement and a verbal agreement. Okay. There's like a, like a very big distinction between the two. Uh, I don't want to say anything that could be misrepresented. That, <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> But the interesting thing, what I will say, is that their coloring is again red and green in this scene. The attorney is wearing a red sweater, and Maurice is wearing a red and green shirt. Maurice's wallpaper is red, and the couch that the attorney sits on is red. And it's the same exact red as the one that was in Lester's office. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's that production design, definitely. I think there's got to be some intention there with the colors, even if it's just like the look of this plot line, but I think continuing some sort of color uh, message or you know some, some sort of color language that's going on uh, that's happening again in this scene. Um, though ultimately, I guess what the attorney, the friend, the solution that he can offer is something called mutual mistake of fact. Basically, at this dinner scene that we talked about, Charles, Maurice had you know, some drinks of alcohol and Lester didn't drink anything at all. Like apparently they had remarked to themselves like, oh, well, like this is very expensive wine and Lester didn't drink it. He left like the whole glass untouched. And this would mean, you know, maybe if Maurice got drunk off of all this wine and Lester was sober, Lester would have an unfair advantage. And whether or not this is true, like Maurice is definitely a little way too over defensive being like, I wasn't drunk. What are you talking about? Like he's a little too defensive about that. But let's just say like, even if Maurice wasn't drunk or if he was drunk, he's too prideful to take this defense, to suggest that this person who he thinks is lesser than him, I guess, at least on the uh, top five wealthiest people, Maurice thinks he's better than Lester uh, he doesn't want to appear to have been uh, taken advantage of or to have Lester have gotten the better of him. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was about to be a very interesting turn of events initially mm. when I had saw the scene. I thought that Maurice was going to say like, oh, well, I still have like some honor and I'm not going to default to the argument that I was drunk and you know, that's why I made a bad business deal. I'll own up and say like, no, like, that was still me. I thought that's where the scene was going, and I thought that was going to be very interesting. But instead, it went more south. It's almost, it so. is almost kind of a racial thing, right? Because they do talk about like, no, 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 it definitely is. Yeah, because Maurice 100%. talks about like Indians to to uh, to Ed earlier, and then Chris, Chris later at the homecoming celebration says to Maurice, "Well, that's pretty big of you, Maurice." 
I mean admitting defeat to a man you consider inherently inferior. So Chris is like spelling it out at the end of this episode. Yeah, I mean, Maurice is throwing like a lot of uh, language signifying that like the thing that he's upset about is that he is Indian. He, I think he says like, I'm not going to say that I lost to Nanook of the North. Oh, yeah. And all of these other uh, words. He's obviously displeased that he lost to someone that like, he, you know, honest to God thinks that like should not, you know, it just shouldn't be there where he's at. Yeah. Um. So, again, not really, a, not really a great ending for anybody, I guess. I guess Lester, you know, gets the better of this bigot, you know, so that's pretty cool. But it's kind of a crappy ending for, uh, for everybody, I think. All right, well, we got one last plot line. So let's dial it back to the beginning where we left off with Jack Black and Maggie O'Connell. Um, we talked about how it's not a football team, but it is a fly fishing team. And something I didn't realize about the movie, A River Runs Through It, I knew like a little bit about it. Uh, I didn't really know the plot or anything. I knew it was maybe like a coming of age or like growing up in a certain time story. But it's like 100% all about fly fishing. Like that's in the movie throughout like a lot of the movie, you know, from the beginning to the end. Uh, There's a lot of fly fishing in that movie. And I still couldn't tell you, like, I don't know what, why you would fly fish versus regular fish, but it does look very cool. It's very cinematic. And I'm a little, I'm a little upset that we didn't see any fly fishing in this episode. We did see some like fishing rods, but that's about it. Yeah. It's certainly a dynamic sport to watch, but yeah, uh, we're turning back to that plot line. Well, we see Maggie at the brick and she is eating her lunch where Kevin goes to talk to her again to ask if she'll be the homecoming queen, even though she's 31 years old. Yeah, it's a bit awkward. You know, maybe Maggie wasn't really planning on doing this and thought maybe it would go away, but Kevin's here and he's asking her again. And, you know, she feels like maybe she's doing this little kid a favor, doing the doing the Sicily High senior class a favor. And uh, she agrees ultimately to be homecoming queen. And that's... I want to say, like, as soon as she does, um, doesn't she get a call? Like, is this the same? This is also in the brick, right? She gets a call from Joel. We talked about telephones all throughout this episode. And Joel is depicted in this, like, makeshift tent in a rainstorm. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this before. You know, Joel's, at the beginning of this episode, Maggie basically says that Joel's not going to be in this episode, but... She says something like he's in the Kenan Peninsula doing something like immunizations or something like that. I'm not sure if that's what he's doing, but he's definitely doing some sort of work with a lot of different... I think he says there's maybe uh, dysentery going on later in the episode. It doesn't matter, but his whole thing in this episode is he's separated. He's out in the wild, I guess, and he needs his pearl quarter which is like a little micro cassette recorder. Um, and he believes that he lost it in Maggie's airplane. But obviously it's really difficult to communicate because I think Joel's using some weird, like, I mean, just a step above like tin cans. Like he's got weird dials and like cranks and he's trying to like talk on this weird, like military telephone and somehow gets a connection to Maggie here at the brick. Yeah, uh, unfortunately the connection isn't great. And as we see as a recurring motif, he can't really express himself to her because they just keep breaking up right there. Mm. 
Uh, I like that Maggie says to him, you're such a child. And this is just right after she's interacted with someone who she thinks is, you know, more or less a child in her eyes, that this Jack Black character, much younger. But, um, you know, in the face with him, she agrees to uh, maybe digress and become homecoming queen. But to Joel, she's calling him the child, you know, because he is childish in his own way, too. Right. You know, he insinuates that the reason that he lost the recorder is because Maggie was doing a lot of intentional <laughs> yeah. flips in the plane to get his recorder out of his pocket and become lodged somewhere in the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, yeah, he's talking about like the roller coaster ride tricks that she's pulling. Um, yeah. Well, that's basically it. You know, the, there's going to be a couple scenes like this where Joel keeps calling her. Um, but to continue with Maggie, Shelly and Maggie are. I think Maggie's like trying on a dress or something and Shelly's there with her. They're just reminiscing about their high school days. How many guys uh, that asked Maggie out and how, you know, she was just, you know, I guess popular, beautiful, uh, attractive to all the, all of her like peers. And I think Shelly and Maggie both relate that they were both like on the cheerleading team, were they both homecoming queen at their high school? I can't remember that, but they, they shared some some milestones. Yeah, I thought that was actually really surprising. Have have we known that Maggie was on the cheerleading squad? No, all we know is that she's from Gross Point. I guess it sort of makes sense because her whole identity before Sicily is like, as she puts it, like daddy's girl and like uh, just this perfect example of. What's the word? Is it debutante? Uh, yeah, that can be used. Yeah. Like a good, um, you know, figurehead for the family right here. <laughs> yeah. You know, a perfect example. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was really interesting because that never really was brought up right there. And in this scene, uh, Shelly insinuates that Maggie, <laughs> Maggie might want to sleep with him. Yeah, and then the episode comes to like a hard stop and Ma- Maggie's like, Shelly, He's 17 years old. They have laws against that. Of course, Shelly's just like doesn't care about that. I guess it's, I guess we're supposed to understand because Shelly is so young and her partner is so old that there's an age gap there. But no, this is actually against the law. Like if what you're talking about with Maggie and this underage boy, uh, Kevin, Jack Black. Right. Uh, that brings us to the next scene, which is in Maggie's house as she's getting prepared. Uh, Kevin comes over and he tries to lay the, um, what is that thing called? Corsage. It's like the flower. You yeah. like pin it on the corsage, corsage. Yeah. Tries to pin the corsage and he can't quite do it because, I don't know, his hands are finicky. I, I read the scene as like he was nervous. Yeah. Like his hands were like trembling. So I've gotten this whole vibe throughout the episode that, you know, Ma- Maggie brings it up to Shelly before, but like, um, I think it's pretty clear that Kevin has like a crush on Maggie despite the logistical need that they need a homecoming queen, uh, you know, of course they could have just gotten someone from the juniors, even sophomore if they had to. But uh, I think we're supposed to understand that Kevin has this crush on Maggie. And as you said, like maybe a little nervous, can't pin the corsage. Maggie has to do it herself. And uh, Joel again calls her looking for the pearl quarter. This is basically just put in here to... Maybe give Rob Morris more scream time. We miss him. But also just to, uh, you know, present in front of Kevin that there might be some sort of, uh, you know, relationship between Joel and Maggie. They're calling each other, talking to each other, kind of 
griping to each other. Did we skip a scene with like, am I thinking of another episode? But isn't there a scene? Oh no, this is later. This is later. I'm thinking of this scene that happens after the dance because I think they're about to go to the dance, right? Yeah, they go to the dance afterwards. And what happens in this scene is that Maggie dances with Kevin. They're like inaugurated, king and queen, blah, blah, blah. And she thinks that Kevin is trying to scout her out because he's asking about Joel Fleischman. So in her mind, she thinks like, oh, he's asking if I'm single and then he's going to ask me out and, you know, all that stuff. But then Kevin reveals that he has a significant other, actually. She is a college girl. She's not in this town, which is why he couldn't invite her over. And he insinuates that, you know, Joel Fleischman would actually be a good partner for her because him and his friends think that Maggie might be lonely. So this I don't think is ever answered in the episode, though I guess... Basically, I think that this is just Kevin retaliating. I think my read was that he actually does, I said this already, he does have a crush on Maggie. And when she sort of like breaks up with him, you know, because he does ask her like, so are you a free agent? I thought that he was just like retaliating. And of course, like the line is always, oh, I've got a girlfriend, but she's like in Canada. You know, she's not, she's like a couple towns Mm -hmm. over. He says his girlfriend goes to UW, I guess University of Washington or something. Um, and then even kind of twists the knife a little further, as you're saying, when he says like, uh, Kevin's like, oh, me and all my friends felt bad for you because you're like so lonely all the time. You don't, you're like single. But I don't know. Did you think that maybe this actually is like Kevin being honest and it's just blowing up in Maggie's face or? Uh, yeah, actually. <laughs> I didn't, it didn't occur to me to read the scene that way. Um, I took him at face value okay. where he was, because I think that makes the um, the blow a lot harder. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, if you're Jack Black playing this role um, or if you're even the director giving direction, like you want it to appear in the first half of the episode that Kevin really is in love with Maggie so that this twist could be more piercing on Maggie. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. I've never, I've never, I remember seeing it for the first time as well and thinking that uh, he was just kind of retaliating against her. But I think that's also, you know, not um, not completely defined by the end of the episode. So you could read it either way. And I think you might be right. There might be a little more dramatic power if uh, if this does just blow up in Maggie's face. Because for all intents and purposes, like, I think she believes him. Like, she doesn't think he's uh, retaliating. So might as well go with that, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. She believes that it's real. And that's really all that we need to know about the scene. Yeah. Uh, we get to the next scene with Maggie, which is where she's doing laundry with Shelly. Uh, last episode, yeah, they were in the laundromat. We actually saw the laundry machines and they were putting stuff inside it. Now they're walking to it. Yeah. Um, so I guess no one in Sicily has laundry machines anymore. Like there's a new laundromat now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't quite understand why they're walking specifically to a laundromat other than to use the same thing I said last time, which is where they're airing their laundry out. Yeah, airing the dirty laundry. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, the metaphor once again, but that was uh, literally last episode. So recycling this metaphor, if that's what's happening. Uh, They are, though, you know, there's a a little added layer here because they're walking past a lumberyard. Um, I don't know what significance that has. Uh, there was some trees earlier in the episode. Now there's a lumber yard. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. But what they're talking about here is um, just, you know, the fact that, like, just because you're single doesn't mean that you're lonely or just because you're single doesn't mean that you have no purpose or whatever like that. You know, she hates she hates that people might see her. Maggie hates this, that people might see her as, uh, what's the word? Well, I don't know, just like someone sad just because she's uh, single. Yeah, so the way I read it was that Maggie was displeased that people were putting an image of her that she didn't have in her own mind. Because to her, she's like, I'm I'm independent. I'm just doing what I want. I'm having a great time being 31 and (laughs) just being me. And now she's presented with this other image of her where she's like, oh, you're like this really sad lady that doesn't have kids. And you just bicker with this doctor on the phone. And it disagrees with the way that she thinks of herself. It's a it's a dissonance between them, which is what's causing, you know, this breakdown within her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's got this, this uh, crisis, I guess, happening with her own image and the way people perceive her. She doesn't like this disconnect. Um, but I want to say the next time we see her is she's back working on her plane with her buddy Mitch. Um, and he found... Joel's recorder tucked away in the plane. So Joel was not wrong. I mean, maybe he was uh, exaggerating a bit when he talks about the roller coaster, like the twists and tumbles that Maggie performed while flying the plane. But he did lose his recorder in her plane. And Maggie takes it and like kind of listens back onto it and starts to, it's a pretty interesting shot where she's like walking away from the plane while listening to the Pearl Quarter And it's interesting because it probably goes on for a little too long. And I think, you know, it's all medical jargon. Like Joel is talking about certain symptoms and things that happen to his patient. And I could be wrong, but I think uh, if you were to translate some of this like medical jargon, it's kind of like like nat like hemorrhoids and like like nasty stuff like that. But but it's funny because Maggie is like almost um, you know charmed by just hearing Joel's voice in his professional way. And she like walks away from her plane and just like has this extended moment where I think she sits in the back of her pickup truck and it's this wide shot that ends the scene uh, where she's just like kind of um, lost in time, just kind of like alone with uh, Joel's voice. Yeah, I like the way that you described that scene right there. Uh, What I would also add on is that the only conversations that they've had with each other throughout this entire episode is with a telephone. And in the telephone, they're constantly being broken up with, whether it's like the static or misunderstanding between the two. But now, with a recorder, she can clearly hear Joel's voice. Yeah. He's recorded it with this device, and there's no interference. And that's when she's able to, quote-unquote, see Joel or, quote-unquote, hear Joel. Uh, This is like... You know, the moment in which she realizes, like, hey, maybe maybe we actually can see eye to eye with each other. Yeah, it's like a faithful reproduction. It's not, um, there's no obstruction to this communication. I, obviously, it's uh, displaced in time because Joel recorded this a long time ago, but it's like a clear signal, I guess. Uh, you know, there's another cool sequence or just a cool shot that I forgot to talk about, but it's at the... Uh, the coronation dance, you know, when Maggie is like crowned the queen and then they have to get up from the throne and Maggie like, and Kevin are walking towards the dance floor. We get Maggie's point of view 
And from her point of view, she's walking past on either side, like all the kids in the high school, they're all like looking at her as she's approaching the dance floor for this coronation dance. I thought it was funny because all of the extras are like, they're like elementary school kids. They're definitely not high schoolers. Whereas like throughout the rest of the episode, most of the extras seem high school age. I, I don't know if this is just to exaggerate this feeling of uh, like this disconnect feeling from this age, like Maggie feels way too old to be here. But also maybe it has something to do with like that episode learning curve where like you'll have a classroom of high school students mixed with like elementary school and and all that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like that shot. I thought it was pretty cool. No, that's that would be super, <laughs> that'd be really neat if they actually did do that idea. Because like, it's true. Whenever you look at like a high schooler, when you're in your, you know, deep 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, you know, as long as you're out of high school, they just look like children. Yeah, yeah. it's exaggerated, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's got a good intention behind it, that, right. that sort of shot. And that brings us to the final scene, which is where they're having like, I'm not even too sure what's happening in this scene. Is this like after they won a game or something? Actually, yeah, I kind of lost it too. I think they did. I think they beat, they beat, they won a game. I think they beat the, yeah, their, they, uh, oh, I wrote this down, their Nipnuck rivals. I, I wrote this down because I saw the uh, subtitle Nipnuck, N-I-P in UK. And I was like, okay, where is this on the map? Like, what is this? If you type in Nipnuck to Google, or at least what Google shows me, it's a character from World of Warcraft. <laughs> so I don't think it's real. Maybe there is a real place, but the first thing that pops up is is wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you had this problem in terms of visuals in this scene, but whenever they would shoot the Maggie's face, on your side, does it have a line going through her face? Like as if like the film reel is broken? Yeah, yeah. There is that. That is that must be something to do with the transfer from um from film to the Blu-ray. Actually, I've also got the DVD, so let me check that real fast and see if it's also on the DVD. But what you're describing, yeah, is like a little bit of like uh the film got scratched there. So uh, okay. See. You know what? Speaking of uh, just the transfer to Blu-ray, the very first shot in this episode looks like garbage. It looks really bad. It's a wide shot of Maggie's plane parked in a field where they're working on it. And there's like some pickup trucks. But if you look at the quality of that shot versus the very next shot in the rest of the episode, it's like a very bad transfer. Like, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't have that. Maybe they didn't have the original film of that. So they had to... Uh, Go with video, whatever they've got. It looks pretty cruddy. Um, sorry, I'm checking the DVD. I'm trying to see. Uh, so the shot you're talking about, is it like Maggie sort of in a medium close-up with like a tiara on? Yeah, yeah, that shot. Yeah, so on the DVD, there is no, uh, there's no like film scratch on that. It's actually, I mean, it looks better on the Blu-ray because it's more definition, more pixels. But um, But yeah, there's no film scratch on the DVD that I can tell. Mm, good guess right there, Ben. <laughs> uh, so what's happening in this scene is that simply that Maggie is kind of hanging out at this powwow and then she goes back inside. It's not evident where she is. I think it's got we, I think it's Joel's office. It's not like you don't, we don't see too. her like walk in, but we just see her like we start inside the building and it looks like Joel's office. And um, yeah, it's not really made clear, but I think we can infer... Uh, it's weird because she's calling Joel from his office, right? She picks up the phone, like she steps away from the 
celebration and goes alone into his office and, and starts to call him. Yeah, Joel picks up and he's, you know, a little bit confused as to why Maggie is calling him. But Maggie's just here to make chit chat with him. She's just, you know, finally calling him just to talk. Yeah, she doesn't she doesn't tell him that she found his pearl quarter, but she does uh you know, talk some medical jargon cuz she's I wonder how many times she's listened to this tape now. I didn't even think about that, but I bet she took it home and like kept listening. Uh because <laughs> she seems to have at least some vocab words, you know, cuz she kind of like spits it back to him. She's like he says something like, "Oh man, it's been crazy. Like there's something in the water here. There's a bad case of uh dysentery." And she's like, well, did you try, uh, you know, this like medical term? And he's like, how do you know about that? Like, you know, no, it's, I wouldn't use that. I would do this instead. Or, you know, they kind of, um, I don't know. She, she's clearly impressed with uh, his knowledge, his professionalism. And I think ultimately just is pleased. I like how you pointed out how there's such difficulty in communication over the telephone. And she's finally pleased to be able to communicate. Um, easily and like clearly at the end of this episode. Yeah, they're speaking the same language. And there's this wonderful, charming clarinet, like solo music. Uh, I wonder if we've heard this before. I feel like a lot of times when we see Joel and we're like, really like whenever we're talking about his like Judaism or his New York-ness, we get like this uh, clarinet solo-y music. Let me see what this is called. I'm checking Moose Chick. There's usually some pretty good documentation of the music. Uh, the only thing I've got here is says swing nostalgia. So I don't know if that is uh, like just Muzak that was pulled from a library or maybe it's a David Schwartz original, uh, but it is a nice little charming note that is like a little romantic, you know? I don't know. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before. And today we have an interesting situation, a lucky situation. We have our guest here with me. So I'm sitting down with our friend Alberto. Charles, you're, you know, you're like calling in. So you're not in the same room, but we're all, we can all hear each other. And uh, we're all like, you know, talking together in this conversation. But Alberto, uh, I think, you know, it was really interesting because uh, one day I was editing the podcast at... Uh, the studio and Alberto was like, what are you doing? What is this? And I had to like kind of explain Northern Exposure. And Alberto, you were like super excited about Northern Exposure. You're like, this sounds awesome. Like, I'd love to be on this podcast. Um, but had you heard of Northern Exposure before? Or like, what? what is your relationship with this show? I had not heard of it before. You introduced me and it's a great show just from that one episode. The yeah. one episode was good. Yeah, you like this episode. That's good to know. Uh, Charles and I, when we were talking about it, sort of like bemoaned that it's like, you know, not the best episode, but I think it still has, I you know, like you, you saw it, I guess, like there's things about it that, you know, anyone could like, I guess. But um, you Use were, the characters. Yeah. It's you, like the first um, time you see it, it's like all these different characters, but- they all have like an interesting story and you could tell like this is already season five. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't have too much backstory, but I could already tell kind of like their personalities just from their interactions in that one episode. The show has been going on for so long that like they've all been established and something about this show that when I first saw it, 
you know, I don't know, I guess like almost 10 plus years ago, something that I really liked about it was that it felt like, especially after a few episodes, that some of the sideline characters started like branching out and becoming their own, like, it was like an ensemble piece, you know, as character driven, where it is about this Jewish doctor from New York who gets, you know, trapped in Alaska, but it's also all these sideline characters start to really like make their own storylines, which is pretty cool. But Alberto, you were talking about one of the storylines you really liked. Um, I think it was kind of, I don't know if it was the main one in it, but they did have probably the most, a lot of the screen time on it. Okay. Um, I forgot the Indian's name, but it was the Maurice. Oh, yeah. And, and the Indian. And uh, oh, Lester Haynes. Lester, yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was funny, like, this rich dude, he's like, he's number one on the list. And then he's like, oh, we have a native Alaskan here now, number five. I'm, I'm going to try to make a deal with him. Yeah. And, like, he's just so confident and so cocky. And he, like, thinks he's just going to go in there. And he's, I think he's talking to his son. Who, yeah. who's, he, he's on talk- the phone, is what you're saying? Or... Like when they were, he was telling him, oh, I'm about to go make a deal. Oh, there's this character, Ed. Ed? Yeah. He's like, so Ed is, is also. He's like a side character too. He's like a, um, he's a native, but he, I think he might be in a different like tribe than Lester. Cause he says something like, oh yeah, I know Lester. He's like, he's Raven tribe or something like mm-hmm. that, I think. Yeah. Um, but Ed is a great character. He's like, a, yeah, sort of like an orphan in a way. Like he doesn't know his family, but mm-hmm. uh, he's from there. But yeah, no, go on. What, what yeah, else? so he's like the the whole episode is acting like he's has the upper hand, but then Lester's just like one ups him, and he didn't even realize that it was coming. Yeah, he's like <laughs> he like poorly negotiated, or like maybe he got too drunk or something. Mm-hmm. What do you what What is your opinion? Do you think like Maurice got too drunk, or do you think he's just like bad at business? I think he just got outplayed in that (laughs) that one. (laughs) He was overshowing his hand, and then he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna own the." He was like, "I'm gonna own the road," and he's gonna have to pay me for the road. And then, like, they go for the deal, and he's like, "Oh wait, but you don't get that parcel." And I didn't really understand like the legal lingo behind it, but it was just like, "Oh, you got one up," and then like the lawyer is like, "You just gotta have to act drunk." Yeah, Act like you were drunk. And <laughs> Pretend it. you were drunk, yeah. I think that might be it, yeah. What do you think of the character of Maurice through this episode? That's like the rich white, the rich guy. In yeah. storyline, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing he's like the richest guy in town or whatever. A little snobby, but uh, comical. Yeah. He was like funny in his own right, how he just, he always wants to be ahead. But then like you just see Lester like, demolish that and and Lester was pretty cool too because he was just like really chill like you know like I hope we don't have to take this to court but you know it's on paper it's a deal you know he's kind of like calm Mm -hmm. and I was talking to Charles like it's hard to tell like is this like a power play is he like trying to pretend to be calm and really just like it's all like he's he's in control you know I think Charles you were talking about how this storyline is kind of also about being in control. And Maurice thinks he's in control. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally wrong about that. Yeah, it's definitely got elements of uh, control in all of the plot lines, but particularly in this one. I am surprised, Alberto, that you did not come uh, come out of this episode thinking that Maurice is like a total bigot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, because he he's like, somebody said like, oh, yeah, you got one up by someone who you think is inferior to you or something like that. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like, some pretty <laughs> little, pretty heavy themes there. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. 
So what other plot lines do we have in this? Oh, obviously, uh, first thing on the screen, we got Jack Black. That, that was exciting, too. <laughs> do you have uh, any favorite Jack Black performances? I mean, School of Rock's a classic. Oh. Um, you know, Nacho Libre yeah. <laughs> is funny. It makes you laugh every time. Um, I can't think. I mean, yeah, I love Jack Black, like, comic-wise, because it's just like, it's kind of like PG comedy, you know? Yeah. And it yeah. was interesting to see him, like, so young. Like, at first, I'm like, whoa, the, I knew the show came out in the 90s. I didn't realize it was, like, 93, like, really early 90s, and that's probably why I didn't really hear of it before. Yeah. Because I didn't start, like, really watching TV till later in the 90s. But, yeah, watching him so young and it had, like, the 90 vibes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's just Alaskan town. <laughs> yeah. So something I was talking to Charles about that I didn't realize, because uh, I thought like halfway through the episode, I didn't, I didn't even realize it until halfway through the episode, but I thought it was like a football team, but it's like a fly fishing team. Oh, You're really? Fishing. Yeah. So did, I did, did not even catch that? that. I thought it was yeah. a football team. Because some of the things they say when they're describing the team, it sounds like they're talking about football. Mm -hmm. And then you see they've got like fishing reels in the back of their car. Oh, wow. They totally um, did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems. And, you know, I think, Charles, you were saying like the Letterman jackets. Yeah, but the, like the Letterman jacket has a has a fish on it. Mm. So That's a little I guess, clue. Yeah, a little clue. But I, I thought it was just like the mascot. Yeah. The marmot? The marmot is the mascot. That's right. Here's a question I have. So this is something we were talking about, Charles. And I think the episode leaves it unanswered. But do you think that Jack Black's character did have a crush on Maggie, the the homecoming queen lady in this episode? Do you think he had a crush on her? Or do you think she was just like, she misunderstood that? Because remember, there's the scene where... Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, definitely like build up to that. Yeah. Like you think like, oh, he's crushing hard on her. He wants her to come to homecoming. Because I think they said like... Oh, there's no other senior girls. So yeah, yeah. Let's Such just pick the hottest place. girl in town and ask her to be the homecoming She's queen. She's 31 years old. Yeah, and that that was a interesting scene too when they were like dancing, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she's like, well, "We got to talk." You know, like <laughs> I'm not. This isn't gonna happen. You're too young. He's like, "Whoa, I have a girlfriend." You know, <laughs> and then I'm like, "Uh, he, I mean, I could kind of see it both ways." Like yeah. maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Like maybe he's just playing it cool, right? Right. Um, but then, like later on, I, I think maybe what the writers were going for is just like to point out how Maggie is kind of alone. Yeah. And so she was kind of like using him crushing on her, kind of to inflate her ego a little bit. Yeah. And then somebody else said something about that afterwards too. I forgot who, what other character talked about it after because Jack Black brought it up when they were dancing, and then mm -hmm. somebody else said it. And it's like, and then and then she like calls uh, the main character, which I also thought was interesting about this episode because he had like maybe like three scenes, right? Yeah. He's like and I'm still trying to figure somewhere. out where he's at <laughs> yeah. in this tent in the middle of nowhere because I, I never saw the show, but I heard some of the podcasts, and I know my yeah. brother Bruno did an episode. I listened to yeah. that one, so like I kind of heard the characters, and I like uh, on the cover is Joel, like he's the main character. And I'm like, well, he's barely in this episode. Right. Yeah. This was one of the, I think it's like the second episode in this season where he's like not prominently featured. There's one episode earlier where he's just not even in it at all. He's, he's not just in it. Gone. So yeah. But yeah, he's like in the, in a tent somewhere in like a rainstorm. Mm -hmm. It's like, it seems like he's in a jungle or something, but in Alaska. He's like, where's know. my tape recorder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think Charles had a similar 
a similar perspective to you, Alberto, like in that, you know, this Kevin character or the writers were really thinking that they wanted to sort of show Maggie being single and that sort of being a dilemma for her and her, her, uh, identity or just like the way other people think about her. Cause she's like single and everyone's kind of, you know, what does Kevin say? He's like, well, me and all my friends were worried about you cause you're all alone all the time. You know? So at the end of this episode, we see Maggie calling Joel, Joel Fleischman, the doctor over in that tent. Uh, what do you think about their romance? Like, did you feel, um, some, I mean, they're just over the phone, so it's kind of hard to say, but is there like some chemistry there? Do you, do you see fireworks or, what do you think? I think she's definitely intrigued by him. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell even when she's just listening to the tape. Right. It's yeah. like he's just talking medical terms or whatever. But she's <laughs> yeah. like, hmm, he's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. Even though he's not in the episode a lot. Like just the fact that like he calls her from wherever he is in the rainstorm is like, <laughs> it was when you did the roundabout that I lost <laughs> the thing. It's on your plane. You got to find like, obviously they have like some sort of relationship. Yeah. That they're very familiar with each other, but you can kind of tell it's not romantic. Yeah. I think at Mm. this point in the series, it's become less, like, it's become more platonic, but there's still always, I don't know how they do that balancing act, because, you know, they get pretty close to each other early on in the series, and then... Not to spoil anything, but like a another character, sort of a third wheel comes in in one of the later seasons, and then now they're kind of agreed they agree to sort of like just try to be not not to try to make any weird romantic uh plays or yeah, I guess, yeah, like not to not to have that dynamic play between them. But uh, but it's still there, you know. There's Could still she the be question. second guessing herself. I think that she'd be maybe like mm, maybe not. Maybe this, I do want to. I feel like the show runs like the engine of the show runs on this romance, so you can't kill it outright. You can like sort of dial it back down and then and then do this thing. Yeah, turn it up a little bit with the tape recorder. I read a I read something from an interview. I I, I can't remember what television show it was. It might have been for the West Wing. It might have been for the Office. I cannot remember. But basically, what it was saying was that like uh, the showrunner didn't want the two leads to get with each other because it was more fascinating to be in like the courtship stage. Yeah, definitely. Rather than just like a you know assign them. You know, because like once it happens, it's like. The tension is all gone. Exactly. Yeah. So the will they? They would try to. They? Yeah, they would try to milk it for as long as they could, and I think that's like something that's like really similar with uh, Joel and Maggie. Yeah. Where you know they just keep you know trying to tease it throughout the what is it now five seasons? Yeah. Yeah, like they almost they get there. You know, they kiss. They you know this this has happened before, but it keeps they have to dial it back now because otherwise they can't just like be in a relationship or. Or the show would be over. But, I mean, we're in season five, so the show's about to end. We know that we only have six seasons, so maybe it'll reach some sort of uh, conclusion here. (laughs) Alberto, what did you think about, like, the 90s-ness of this show? Like, did that stick out like a sore thumb to you? Yeah, like like right away. Did not age well, or do you feel like this is, like, has some charm to it because it was written and done 30 years ago? I think it, yeah, I think, like the nostalgia is definitely there, and I think that's a I think that's a good thing. Like growing up in the '90s, you know, people who didn't grow up in the '90s probably don't get it. Like some <laughs> people might see some scenes, like I 
they they would judge some scenes like oh you can't do that nowadays but Definitely, like yeah but like still it's just like in the 90s you can have it was fun you know they mm-hmm. weren't trying to be offensive or yeah whatnot yeah there are you know there's <laughs> like uh i think northern exposure is pretty progressive for its time but it does feature like this maurice character is like super bigoted but mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of times when they use that character they're using him as like a example of like he's wrong and mm-hmm. then you also I guess you don't see it too much in this episode. Well, I guess maybe, but usually his storylines are him like going through some change where he like sort of grows and becomes like a better person because like he starts off as being sort of this bigoted character who looks down on uh, Lester Haynes, this like Native American person. But I guess like the turn in this episode is that, uh, you know, he's able to, I think what Chris says is like, it's nice to see that you're able to like admit defeat to someone who you think is, you used to think was like worse than you. Yeah. Like he, he didn't do the booze card. He just like, he just like surrendered. He gave the win to Lester. Yeah. The other thing that wasn't so much nineties, but more like just wilderness, (laughs) Alaska. And this Mm -hmm. was one plot line we didn't really talk about too much was, um, um, who was the shop owner's name? Ruth Ann. Ruth Ruth Ann. And then like the, the IRS person comes and trying to figure out what's going on. And then you quickly realize that she like barter and trades like yeah, almost, almost everything in the store. And I'm like, yes, that's like the, that's the old way. That's like way more primal than the 90s. So you would, you would fit right in in Sicily? I would fit right into that in Sicily. I'd just be like, yeah, I got some of this, some of this. Can I have a, that reindeer right there in the shelf? <laughs> yeah. I feel like uh, bartering is such a strange system because you have to convince the other individual <laughs> the that you're, gr- like the, you're good is worth of similar value yeah. to the thing they're trading, but like maybe they disagree with you. That <laughs> like you have to come it, it is not of equal value. Yeah. So you have to be like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, like fox fur will last you throughout the entire winter. You're not gonna grow cold, man. But like, I need those. Uh, I need that ham and cheese. Yeah. Like, <laughs> double A batteries. <laughs> <or something. laughs> it's totally different, but I guess it makes for like a a more satisfied trade because if you both can't agree that what you're trading is worth is equal value, then you're probably both happy. But I can see what you're saying, Charles. It might be hard to come to an agreement to say that like these four Fox furs are the same as like an eight pack of double A batteries or whatever. Yeah. I, I would not have made it very far in a bartering society. Cause like to me, I think like whatever goods I own are like absolutely fantastic. So I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, no, this is worth like uh, your house. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And then trying to put like a taxable value on it too. It was just oh yeah. Made I, that whole story like and then she was going like through the relationship issue. I'm like, oh, this is a mess. This is just a big mess. I was talking to Charles. I think my favorite part of that storyline was like they're doing some sort of, they're doing their like tax documents and Amy, the IRS lady, starts to have a breakdown and then she's like, It's okay, it's okay. Like, let's just go, let's go over your like receipts. And then Ruthann is like uh, we should probably wait till tomorrow. Like you're you're not in a good like place right now. I don't think we should do this. Like Ruthann has to tell her like, nah, let's just do this tomorrow. Like you you need a you need a break, Amy. So I actually have a question for y'all. All right, all right. Because I don't know Ruthann's character that much. Because this is like the first episode. Right. Why did she end up telling the truth, even though it ended up costing her? Is she just like a moral character like that? This is a good question. I would have never done that. I would have been like, Iris, you screwed up. Like, oh, tough cookie. (laughs) Yeah. I'm keeping that dough. This is a good question. Charles and I were talking about this earlier in the episode. And 
we also agree it is kind of a strange ending because it feels it feels that the Amy, the IRS lady, is just kind of like, you're right. There was a mistake here. You owe us a thousand. Yeah, and she just leaves immediately. Like, she, there's not really a. It's kind of just like unceremoniously, just like, all right, I'll I'll never see you again. Bye. Like, she just leaves. And she stops though for like a second. Right. And then just keeps walking. So right. maybe she. She gives that, yeah, she gives that look to Ruthann. You're right. We didn't talk about that, Charles, but I guess that's like a knowing look that she's like, at least like, thank you, Ruthann, for being there when I've had this crazy marital uh, problems. But about Ruthann, Charles, what would you say? Why do you think she she told the truth? She did the honest thing. Uh, From a character standpoint, like from Ruthann's perspective, I think that she's the type of character that says that if you set a standard, then you have to meet this standard. And it looks like that to her, you should not try to cheat. And if you say that you're not going to cheat, then you have to not cheat. You can't simply say one thing and then your actions not mean up to it. And I think that goes in line with what Ruthann is about. I don't think she's ever really been a character that like, you know, it's very weaselly. I know that in this episode, she admits that she cheated, but it looks like that's something that bothers her. That's not something that she throws away and says like, ah, you know, I felt like I was in a right in a way. He was like my soulmate or something like that. So I think that's my reasoning um, for why Ruthann did it. For a writing perspective, I think what the writer is trying to say is that either there is no real karmic justice in the universe. So like, you know, whatever you're putting out there, it just is that thing. So if you do a good thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be rewarded in return with a good thing. And then, like, the second thing is a much more cynical read on the situation. But, like, maybe, the, like, the writer was going through something and he was just saying, like, you know what, man? This is just all the universe is. This is a very nihilistic view. And I think that ultimately you should be self-serving because this is what happens <laughs> When you try to do the right thing. Well, you're saying like Ruthann did the right thing and then she just got charged like $1,000 plus interest. So it was kind of like, in the grand scheme of things, it cost her more to be honest. It did. It did cost her more to be honest. And we talked about this earlier before, but like, I'm a strong proponent of saying like, if if you were, if you rightfully have to do it, like this, this wasn't something that was like bonus. This was something that like, they went through the sheets, they went through the numbers, and this is the tax that she rightfully owns. This is how the system operates. I'm not saying whether the system is fair. I'm not trying to make a statement on that or, you know, what the taxation guidelines should be, whether you should be reevaluating wealth and redistributing it, all of that stuff. It's just that in this moment or at that particular moment, she owed this amount of money and she has to, she just has to pay it. (laughs) is basically what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I guess, yeah, in the end, like, you know, yeah, that's that's right. It's like that's kind of what the actual truth was. Whether or not, you know, she was, was honest or dishonest, it was just what the truth was, I guess. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a bit of a mystery. Um, Ruthann, you know, she's, she's the type of character who, she has like her moments of wisdom and she's like one of the oldest people in town. So she's got that. Uh, we've actually heard her tell this story about 
I think in this episode she talks about like packing the parachutes and like she cheated on her husband. Mm, yeah. She said that earlier and maybe the second season as well. So like we knew that story before. It's interesting to see that she like, you know, she tells the story again. But yeah, how would I, I don't know what's the word I'm what's the description I'm looking for? Uh she's kind of no nonsense at the same time, too. But hey, I think we've had enough discussion for this episode. Uh something I want to do now before we end our episode since we've got Alberto here with us. Uh, normally how we end it is I'll ask Charles uh, to guess what would happen in the next episode because Charles hasn't watched the next episode yet. And uh, I'm going to give you guys the title of the next episode. And Charles and Alberto, since you haven't seen it, maybe you can guess what what do you think would happen in this next episode? It's called Birds of a Feather. What do you think happens in this episode? Think we got literal birds happening, or what is that phrase? Mm. Well, that's like really on the nose. So I'm gonna try to be really specific because, okay. like, like if I if I just say like the regular guess, would be like, well, I guess like uh, you know, two people are gonna share similar interests. Or like, well, yeah, like that's, okay. that's yeah, that's gonna be <laughs> obvious. I'm going to guess we haven't had Joel Fleischman have a plot in a while, so let's throw him into the mix. And comes back a character he ordinarily wouldn't get along with, or like just doesn't have a lot of screen time with, Mm. is uh, Shelly. So let's say there's something involving Joel and (laughs) Shelly, and they're discovering something that was introduced to them by a third party, and they bond over this certain activity. And to be even more specific, (laughs) I'm going to say like that certain activity is something in the outdoors related. It would be crazy if you were a hundred percent right, but I don't think I have to say it's it's not that. But uh, <laughs> I really do like that as a as an as a topic for an episode. Maybe it'll happen later, Alberto. But what about you? What do you think that title means? The first thing I like came to mind. It's probably not even close as well. But like I just remember the first scene from the episode I watched was they were working on the plane. Mm. So I think there might be like some some, some plane flight. and birds or something going on there. Yeah, um, we haven't had like any like there wasn't any flying in this episode. There was just repairing the plane. Do they usually fly in some of the other episodes? Some of the episodes we will see them like in the plane, and obviously it's probably like they probably That's shoot it on a stage. Plane? It is Maggie's plane, so she's like a mail delivery pilot. Oh wow! So cool. she delivers mail. They didn't even mention that in the episode. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah, you still have a lot to see, Alberto. Oh yeah. man, I got it. Uh, <laughs> Like I was telling you before, I'm watching some shows now, but this is like one I would definitely be interested in being a fan of. Very nice. Alberto, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This is a lot of fun. We got to do it again sometime. And uh, Charles, I'll be talking to you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Alberto for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.